Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to another World Cup edition of Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Dander and shortly. And of course, our former ITN journo turned punter Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. After that, a little over four years ago when Croatia made their giant killing run to the World Cup final in Russia, it looked like their golden generation, led by Luka Modric, had peaked just short of football's ultimate prize, going into Qatar. No one had Slatko Dalic's squad on the shortlist to go one step further. But after a slow start, they're now one game short of repeating the heroics of last time around. And any side that can manufacture a win over Brazil needs to be given the respect they've earned and more than a puncher's chance of knocking out Argentina to discuss their chances. The same man who we travelled the journey with last time around, Alexander Holliger from Telesport in Zagreb, will join us to discuss how the Vitrini got to this point and whether he thinks they can go all the way. Then on the flip side, the very nation knocked out by Croatia will be watching from home as the Samba Kings, derided for their dancing celebrations against South Korea, are now conducting an unexpected post-mortem of how it came to this back home in Brazil. And to go through all that from The Guardian, we'll chat to Fernando Duarte and we'll wrap up whatever we haven't gotten to in World Cup corner. But Michael, you are still over there. We've been hearing your voice. Um, you um, look like a very, well, a much more relaxed man than the busy uh, bee who was just on 24-7 uh, when you had, how many guests did you have over there, Edge? 500 plus, mm. depending on what you want to, uh, who you want to count and when. But uh, look, yeah, hello to uh, you, Rob, and hello, Willem, and all the listeners on Box to Box. It's great to be back uh, over here in Doha still a, a few more days. Looking forward to the semifinals. But what a journey it's been for myself and uh, my business, but also for everybody who's uh, had the opportunity to be over here in Qatar. And um, it really was topped off for me uh, when we when I went out to see Morocco and Portugal and to see an Arab nation get through to the semifinal of the World Cup was something that I'll remember forever. Unbelievable atmosphere, incredible response in the city, and uh, this World Cup well and truly alive, Rob. Yeah, it absolutely is, and that vision that you sent on our WhatsApp chat, each of, uh, it's one thing to, to watch um, a, a game like that um, on television, but it's another thing altogether to get a perspective from the grandstands and some of that vision you were setting. So as you're watching at home, you're listening to the whistles and then right next to you, there's this guy standing there, just whistle, whistle, whistle nonstop throughout the whole thing. And, and some of the, the, the podcasts, because, you know, like a lot of, you know, passionate football people, I've been just consuming every bit of uh, content I possibly can. Um, where uh, a lot of the people in your position, I'll be interested in your opinion on this, uh, are, are talking about Morocco and Argentina as the, the two teams that the World Cup really needed to get to the back end of the tournament to, to build that atmosphere. Um, that hasn't necessarily... Um, been the case even in the England France game. Um, one of the one of the uh, the journos that I was listening to on the BBC said that the uh, the atmosphere just wasn't there because the, the the fans just weren't making the the kind of noise that you expect from from you know passionate hardcore fans like the Moroccans and the Argentines. Oh, well, it's really been a World Cup for African and Asian confederation teams. Their fans have been out in force and really contributing to the atmosphere. Uh, European fans in general, this is it's very much a generalisation, but I think Willem will probably agree with me having been over here as well, that they just haven't turned up. There's been a lot of expatriate uh, people from the region, uh, what I call event goers, but I think the real fans from Europe have not shown up. And you know, with Spain and Germany going out of the tournament, um, you know, I think that was compounded. Uh, England fans, for me, have been very, very quiet. Uh, the French fans have been, it's been like a library. But I tell you what, the African and Asian nations have well and truly turned up and they have set this World Cup alight. Um, that, let's not forget the South Americans. They've been in big numbers, particularly Argentinians and Brazilians. Uh, but the atmosphere at... Uh, any game which has had an Asian team or an African team has just been electric, and I'm sure Willem would agree with that. Couldn't agree more, Michael. Yeah, I think when we look back on this World Cup, it is going to be the colour and the noise that, particularly, I think Morocco. You know, the strong red and the green as well. Uh, I think this is what we're going to remember from a football perspective. We've got a couple of 
pretty heavy stories to get through, guys. But we will start with a lighter one, a football-based one. Morocco have become the first African nation to reach the semifinals of the World Cup, joining Argentina, France and Croatia. Yusuf and Nezri's header was enough for Walid Regregui's side to move past Portugal. The Atlas Lions now meet Le Bleu. And a nice line, Michael, from uh, defender Roman Sace. Dreaming is free, uh, but to do it is different. As I said, the, uh, yeah, the, the Moroccans have been magnificent. Uh, I was at their... Uh, their final group stage game against Canada. Uh, my ticket just happened to be in the uh, in the Moroccan end. I was standing there just by myself next to two young fellas, and one of them turned to me with about 20 minutes to go, and he said, please, can you just let us win this game? We need this one more than you do. I said, mate, I'm not Canadian. I'm Australian. I'm all for it. He goes, oh, fantastic, and we got on really well. Uh, and they've got a fantastic chant, Allah, Allah. I said, what's this one all about? He goes, we're saying, Allah, please. We need this victory. Can we please have this win? So, no, nah, they're uh, yeah, lovely people. Good to meet the, uh, the people on the street and... Uh, yeah, the Moroccans have brought a hell of a lot to this tournament, Edge. They certainly have. The North Africans in general. Let's not forget Tunisia. We had the pleasure of seeing Tunisia and Australia play and uh, and that crowd that day was fantastic. But there is such strong um, Moroccan and Tunisian communities here in Doha that uh, it has been a lot. Just one little anecdote about the Moroccans. Um, the ACOR GM of the region where all of uh, the apartment buildings we've been staying in uh, with our business is, is a Moroccan guy. And uh, Rob, he's getting around in a 1959 Chevy convertible. <laughs> um, it's I don't know how he keeps it going. He's painted it in the Moroccan green. He's got the Moroccan flag painted on the back. And uh, he's getting he's getting around uh, LaSalle with a, with a top down, letting everybody know who he is. And uh, I've enjoyed uh, the experience of Hashim, um, seeing him um, ride the ups and downs of Morocco's journey. But he is, every time I see him, he's got a grin the size of a Cheshire cat. I want to touch on the, the passing of Grant Wall. We'll stay with the World Cup. It's, it's cast a significant pull over the, the entire tournament, really. He was just 48, uh, a genuine champion of, uh, of the game of soccer in the US, uh, a huge name, really, in the, in the journalistic world. Uh, he died in the press zone of Lusail Stadium during the quarterfinal between Argentina and the Netherlands. His manager, Tim Scanlon, said he appeared to suffer some kind of acute distress in the start of extra time. And in the days before his death, he Grant had written himself that he'd uh, been to a local hospital. He said, my body, my body finally broke down on me. Three weeks of little sleep, high stress and lots of work can uh, do that to you. And we should also touch on the sudden passing of Qatari photojournalist uh, Khaled Al-Mizlam, who died suddenly as well the day after Wall. Clearly a man of his, uh, his convictions who made his, his wife and his brother proud. So all the best to them uh, moving forward. And we will see yeah, how it plays out uh, in the fullness of time. Domestically, the big story, the A-League men's and women's grand finals will be played in Sydney for the next three seasons. The APL have reached an eight-figure deal with Destination New South Wales. APL boss Danny Townsend said the league's board had reached the decision unanimously. That board includes Scott Barlow, Anthony DiPietro, Paul Litterer, Simon Pearce and others. Let's have a listen to some of what Townsend had to say to SEN's global game in the hours after the announcement. I think the main reason is, um, Adam, is we want to create some history and some tradition in the game. And, and I think um, making bold decisions like this is about change and we could sit here and do the same thing for the next 18 years but it's it's not necessarily going to move the needle on where we need to be as, as a league um, so for us it was about listening to a state government that, that wanted to invest in our game and and um, then think about what we did around that to make it a reason why all Australian football fans should celebrate football for for that week in, in June. You know, we had that grand final in Melbourne and didn't sail it out, sadly. And I think what that tells us is that the grand final is not an event on the major events calendar and we need it to be. And, and then, look, we can't be naive. That doesn't happen overnight. We've got to invest in the event experience and invest around the event to ensure that it's on every football fan's must-do list is, is get to an A-League grand final in Sydney in the next three years or wherever else it might be after that. So active supporter groups from Sydney, the Wanderers, Victory, City and Adelaide all put out statements denouncing the decision within four or so hours. And there's also been some fragmentation uh, amongst the board. Chris Fong, who is a board member, uh, he's from Brisbane Raw, uh, in an email to fans said they didn't stand by the decision and wanted broader consultation. Uh, Tony Sage, always up for a quote, said it was an effing joke. And Rob, I mean, it's really bore my blood to hear him reference last year's grand finals, a reason mm -hmm. to take it away. I mean... That one didn't sell out, but that's a proper outlier. No matter what state of disarray the league's been over the years, they've always managed to sell out the showpiece event, even in markets where they never held it. 56,000 in Perth 2019, 50,000 in Adelaide 2016. These are the great days uh, for A-League supporters. Uh, and yeah, to hide it behind, to hide the cash grab behind a veil of we're building new tradition. 
uh, yeah, a lot of very, very angry people around who have invested a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of love into the league. In this instance, it feels like a rush decision. It, 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 you got to wonder why uh, it's uh, it's being announced in the middle of the World Cup. The, the 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 season is already well underway. It could easily have waited until afterwards. So you sort of get a feeling that it um, uh, they knew there was going to be some backlash, so it could easily be smothered under the weight of, of the World Cup. I mean, some of the the response from the active supporters group, uh, original style Melbourne victories main active support group say they're going to walk out at the 20-minute mark of Saturday night's derby and they're not going to come back. Um, so, you know, that, that's a pretty a strong statement in, on, on behalf of the fans. And uh, there's just so many examples uh, of uh, of scenarios in the grand final where, uh, particularly with the cost of living being what it is, and, you know, it's not expected to go down anytime soon, airfares uh, are, uh, are over the top. I mean, these are working class people for the, in the main who, uh, who who cherish these opportunities. And if we have a grand final in Australia uh, as, a, as a unique point to, to our competitions, our football competitions, then, then the you know, the hardcore fans want to be there. So look, I'm finding it pretty difficult to, to buy into it. And, and Danny, you know, we, we love you. We think you're doing a, a generally an excellent job as the A-League's chief executive. But on this one, it, it, there was so, so much of the publicity that's come out today from uh, A-League's HQ, um, Reeks of Spin. I'd probably take a different tack to you, Rob. I'd still think the Premier's Plate is the uh, number one priority for all of the teams in the A-League. Um, I think the finals are a bit of hit and giggle. Um, I don't really have too many concerns about this. Uh, I think where ang- fans should direct their anger is that we need the pyramid reconnected. We need the B-League and we need promotion relegation. That is the absolute paramount objective. Um having a grand final in Sydney every year when, you know, the finals don't really mean much. Premier's plate for me, a bit old-fashioned. That's the uh, best team in the best team for the season for my in my book whether you're right or wrong there edge it's not really a matter of right or wrong it's an opinion and that's fine you're entitled to it but i think the uh, the backlash today across social media and across the active support groups uh show that the final series mean a hell of a lot more to a lot of people who pay their money and rock up every week than a bit of hit and giggle um and i'd firmly put myself in that camp a bit of a side issue as well which is a right disgrace craig goodwin who's a national hero at the minute uh was used in the announcement video he was uh, a little clip of him was used. He's come out on Twitter post the uh, the publication of that and said, I may be in the video for the choice to host grand finals in Sydney, but I don't support it. I'm a player, but also a fan. Like many fans around the country, I'm disappointed with the decision. It looks very much like the players have been filmed talking about anything and then it's been chopped up to fit the purpose. And Tom Glover, uh, in particular, his generic line around we need to be the biggest game in Australia. I mean, he could have been talking about absolutely anything. So if they've uh, if they've used their footage and set them up and then... Uh, pumped up their message using the footage. That is a uh, yeah a proper disgrace, in my opinion. Um, so we'll yeah, see how that good. plays out. Do we want to close out with a little bit of uh, Matildas and Pararoos Central? I'm always up for some Pararoos, mate. All righty. Well, we'll go straight to the Pararoos. Uh, we know that 2023 is a massive year for the Australian game, and they're going to get first billing. They're going to host the uh, the States on January 4th. That's going to be the first time since 2019 our Pararoos have played uh, on home soil. Uh, Kyle Lamert, the coach, said, we're very excited to face the world number four in our own backyard. We've had great games in the past, and no doubt this will be a fantastic test for our young team. Uh, and to the Matildas, they're going to play a farewell match, despite they're not actually going anywhere, at Marvel Stadium on Friday, July 14, six days before the opener against the Republic of Ireland. No opponent's been announced, Michael, but Football Australia have built it as a top 10 ranked uh, side that are going to be competing uh, at the World Cup. And following that, they'll head up to Brisbane where they're going to be stationed leading up to and during the group stage. So the uh, logistics starting to come into play for the Matildas. Absolutely. I noticed there was quite a few teams were announced in terms of where they would be basing themselves. Uh, I think England's on the Central Coast. Uh, I think Canada's out at uh, the Burgers, Heidelberg United Alexander, uh, one of the great brands of Australian football. Um, yeah. I mean, most people know who Alexandros is these days, don't they, Rob? I think they will, especially from an ex-player's point of view like you. But uh, but if we're just using the, the, the nicknames, um, sobriquets, so to speak, uh, uh, just in case. Well, let's cater for the lowest common denominator. Hey, it's good to be back on Box of the Box. What have we got coming up for the rest of the show, Rob? <laughs> Mate, uh, we've got a bumper show. We're going to talk to Alexander Holliger from uh, Telesport. He also uh, writes uh, for The Guardian as well. Uh, he's over there in Zagreb. And and he's he's a classic guy because he's you don't get a more understated person than Alexander. I was watching... Uh, a podcast that he, he featured on where he was asked by a very enthusiastic uh, British host 
what he thought of Croatia's chances against Brazil. And uh, and he, he just said, well, pretty much none. Um, gave them no chance. And she said, well, come on, give us something, Alexander. And he said, okay, well, it needs to go into extra time and a penalty shootout, and then Croatia's a chance. And then we're going to talk to Fernando Duarte. And I've got to concede that when I organised Fernando as Willem uh, threw me under the bus at the top of the show by saying that um, that they were going to hand Croatia uh, their backside, um, I had organised Fernando thinking I was well ahead of the game. And I said to him, look, even if they lose, please still come on because it's going to be a bigger story. So Fernando's going to talk to us. He's also from The Guardian after Alexander. So, uh, yeah, that's all coming up next. Michael, are you ready for it? On Box to Box. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt's. Hoots Spices. Yes, we love cooking. We always say it and eating on this show and our friends at Hoots Herbs and Spices are always on hand for tips and advice on how to add flavour and taste to the kitchen and changing the mood of food. Now, I know we all like our Balkan food from time to time. Can anybody name a Balkan recipe, a classic Balkan recipe that's pretty much common throughout that part of the world? Sausage, mince? No? No takers? Savab chibi? Gentlemen, you know that edge, don't you? You've eaten plenty of them in your time. Well, my, my favourite is the Kevin uh, Rolls Rod from that part of the world. I mean, they're called all different things, you know, whether you're in the uh, North Macedonian region or through to Croatia and Serbia, but uh, I love a cabbage roll mm. with the minced pork. Mm-hmm. And uh, having been in uh, Qatar for a big portion of 2022, I tell you what, I'm <laughs> yeah. missing a bit of pork. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wouldn't have eaten much over there. Derek, are you familiar the, with the, the recipe that I'm talking about, the Sheva Pichi? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I did do a stag do in Croatia a little while ago, but it wasn't on the menu. Oh, hey, well, the, given that it was a stag do, it probably was. You just can't remember. Uh, it's the skinless sausages, the, the minced beef, pork and lamb often combined together, uh, grated onion, garlic cloves, finely chopped, and then the Hoyts come in, the cayenne pepper, the paprika. You make sure that you use a good tablespoon of that for every three, 400 grams of mince you use. Just roll them up into little mince balls, put them on the barbecue, bread delicious. You'll absolutely love them. Squeeze some lemon juice on the top. Mmm, fantastic. And remember to refill any of your empty spice charges up with Hoyt's value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's. Johnny Ocado, my good friend at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Well, it's been a seismic day in the history of the A-League and nobody's poured as much passion and personal finance into one of the league's great clubs, Perth Glory, over the years, then Glory owner and chairman, Tony Sage. Tony, welcome back to box to box Uh, Thanks, mate. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Before we get to your position on the uh, the A-League, or the APL rather's decision to sell the grand finals for the A-League men's and women's uh, to Sydney for the next three years, um, there's been a bit of conjecture about who at the APL would actually vote on such a matter. Um, it seems that the board consists of representatives from from five clubs. So is this correct? And is it fair to say that the Glory aren't members of this board, despite the fact that the yeah. APL is a, a conglomerate of all clubs? Yeah, look, uh, under the uh, demerger, there, were, there was only 10 board seats uh, available. So five of those were set aside for the A-League clubs, uh, three independents, one for the uh, FA, uh, and an independent chairman. So that's uh, the way the voting structure works. I'm not on that board uh, at all. Um, hence uh, my shock this morning when uh, I got woken up by another owner from uh, Adelaide who said, did you know about this? Despite not being on that board, the clubs were still going to vote as part of the sort of the sort of broader uh, opinion of the APL and, and you've woken up and they've essentially jumped the gun. Yeah, well, look, I got a phone call uh, from my um, CEO a week or so ago saying that they this was a plan and uh, they called an, a meeting, uh, owner's meeting, which uh, we've never had at Christmas time uh, for in Melbourne for Thursday, which I'm going to attend. And I just assumed it was going to be voted on then. So when I woke up this morning, I was in complete shock that uh, the deal had been done and, and was announced. And you saw my comment uh, uh, immediately on the chat room. Uh, as soon as it got announced, I put FKN joke. And that's all I put. <laughs> Three letters and and, and, and a word joke. Uh, and then I got a phone call from uh, from the executive saying, what the hell are you doing? And I said, well, why don't this is a, a momentous seismic uh, change to the way we view football in this country. One of our uniquenesses from NRL AFL is the fact that you 
finish on top, you get a grand final home, not only for the players, but for the fans of each state. You know, I was an advocate for many, many years, and I tried to push it through uh, the FA that the grand final should be over two legs, right? Can you imagine 57,000 people, Perth versus Sydney a couple of years ago, had to go to penalties. If that had to go back to Sydney, right, for uh, a second leg, the, 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 the person finishing on top gets the first leg, the second leg, not only would you got 57 in Perth, you would have got 40-odd in the Sydney. Uh, that's 90-odd thousand watching a grand final, and Perth had to win. Right, that game for away goals. If um, if Sydney had scored first, it would have been so exciting. That's the way I've advocated it for so long. Uh, having a two-legged fi- uh, grand final. And Tony, not to, to keep harping on it, but it is good insight into how the APL is actually working because it's only an organisation that's been around for a couple of years. Chris Fong, uh, he's your counterpart essentially. He's at Brisbane Raw, but their club is one of the ones that sits on the uh, on that board. He's distanced himself. Interestingly, he said. Um, in an email to a fan, he said that he, like you, was was in the dark that this had been given the final go-ahead. So is there a fragmentation in dealings between APL clubs? Is there a hierarchy in terms of not just who sits on the board and how sort of decisions are made? It looks like there is. I mean, Chris Fong is not a liar. I mean, I I assumed that they had a board meeting and they approved it uh, subject to the owners' meeting, uh, which was based on Thursday. That's all I can assume if uh, Chris wrote an email like that to a fan, one, one thing Chris isn't is a liar. So he, he probably assumed that. I haven't spoken to Chris on this issue, and that's the first I, you, I've heard that he sent an email out to a fan. But uh, that would be the way I presumed it happened. They had a board meeting, and then it was going to go to a full owners meeting, which is scheduled, as I said, in Melbourne uh, on Thursday. So, yeah, to me, it's um, it's a surprise. Look. Uh, I had, a, like I said, an executive rang me after my comment and he's tried to explain the situation. I tried to explain back the lifeblood of this uh, sport is the fans and the last thing you want to do is disenfranchise the fans. Now, I've worked it out just on prices. I looked it up. If the grand final was in Sydney, uh, a family of four from Perth would pay $12,000 in airfares and accommodation. Who can afford that? If we uh, actually ho- uh, won the competition and uh, uh, were able to host it here. Um, I mean, that, that, that's just ridiculous. It, it, uh, anyway, my, my views are, are well known. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm pretty upset. Uh, my own fans are very, very upset uh, thinking that I made this decision. So I put that very clear to my fans. But, you know, I've read all of the social media and, you know, Melbourne fans, even Sydney FC and uh, Western Sydney fans uh, are, are quite upset about it as well. So <laughs> you didn't, uh, you didn't even... Um, uh, get your own constituency happy about the decision. Yes, well, Tony, challenging and, and uncertain times, but as always, you, your passion for the game comes through loud and clear. So thank you very much for uh, for finding some time for us. Really appreciate it. No problems. Thanks very much. Bye. Yes, it's only a little over a week out till Christmas. Ed, you're going to avoid the duty-free on the way home, aren't you? Absolutely. You like the plague. I'll be giving it the biggest wide berth you've ever seen. Because the first stop you'll take when you get into that Uber or that taxi on the way home is Chemist Warehouse to buy some fragrances for all the ladies in your life. So get your Christmas shopping done when you come home. And if you haven't gone to Qatar, you can head off to your local Chemist Warehouse for amazing deals on fragrances. There's Calvin Klein Euphoria 50ml Eau de Parfum for just $34.99. Save 55 bucks, Derek. That is an absolute deal, isn't it? There you go. And he probably doesn't even know that that was a television show before he arrived in Australia. Estee Lauder, beautiful 30 mils eau de parfum for $49.99, say $50 edge. Yeah, you know something, Rob? Um, just recently I appeared on uh, Qatari television and they gave me a bottle of perfume as a gift. And, uh, of course, I've got the ladies in my life, my two daughters, with me at the moment. And I rushed home after the uh, – rushed back to the apartment after it, and I gave them the uh, perfume and they did a bit of a squirt of it and said, gee, you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy any of this at Chemist Warehouse. Ah, yes, of course you wouldn't because it's only quality. <laughs> Maybe the Qataris went down to their local knockoff shop because you only get the authentic stuff at Chemist Warehouse, don't you? It's like the Hugo Boss number one, 125ml at a toilet. save 69 bucks. Montblanc Explorer, 60ml Eau de Parfum, 49.99, save $73. Chemist Warehouse Edge, Derek. Love a bit of Montblanc Explorer. Of course you do. Yes, they are. It is. The great savings are every single day. Box to box. 
for Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is box to box, and there have been some wonderful football stories coming out of this World Cup. Of course, Morocco, we've covered that uh, in detail over the course of the last couple of weeks as they've uh, risen to the unlikely uh, stage of the semi finals. But equally, another story that just keeps on keeping on is that one that uh, we know so well, and that is, of course, the story of the Vitreni uh, Croatia. Four years ago, we saw them ascend to the heights of a World Cup final. Uh, Luka Modric was in his pomp. But we did think uh, perhaps that was the, the the furthest that they would ever reach, that Luka Modric might not just have one more round left in him, but he sure has done that. And not only have uh, they had one more round, but after a slow start, they've knocked out Brazil and the uh, Croatian team are about to head to a semi-final in the World Cup. And a man we talked to four years ago in Russia and he's the same man we're about to talk to now from Telesport in Zagreb, Alexander Holliger. Welcome back to Box to Box. Thanks for having me, guys. I watched you on a podcast with a very enthusiastic British host, I was saying to the boys, uh, uh, where she was trying to draw out of you what your hopes uh, were against Brazil, and you were very reluctant to give her oh, anything. Yeah. <laughs> you had no hope at all, really, uh, but, you, but, but she did you know, draw something out of you, and you ended up predicting the result, extra time and penalties. Yes, yes that was very lucky. I mean, maybe not lucky because every uh, Croatia's knockout game seems to end up with, you know, either extra time or penalties. And they now played, what, like, uh, before the previous World Cup and this one, they played, uh, uh, what, six games, and four of them went to penalties. So it's not that hard yeah. to predict. But I'm sure you had to see that. I was really sleep deprived back at the time, and uh, <laughs> it was like probably my third guest spot in British media that day. So I was just, you know, uh, looking to to get it over with. Alexander, you were just fine by us, mate. You're an understated man at the best of times, but uh, it's that's that's part of your charisma and the joy of uh, of watching and listening <laughs> to you speak. And <laughs> but what I did well, though, that's, that's that's one way of looking at it. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, mate. No, I mean, look, it's, it's it's a pleasure talking to you. I mean, uh, I I much rather pre- I prefer doing things like this than you yeah. know when you when Croatia does something every two or four years, then everybody calls you and they're all like yeah. two-minute spots uh, on television when they when you have make, they just make you repeat all the same stuff all over again. And yeah. uh, I, I'm not too enthusiastic about that. Thanks to Google Translate, um, I, I translated one of your recent articles from Telesport, uh, the one that you wrote before uh, the quarterfinals, as it was, and uh, and I was interested, am interested to ask you a question, and it's quite a deep thinking, and I urge anybody to do this. Uh, it's quite easy; you just got to type into Google, you know, translate Croatian to English if you want to read this fantastic article mm. that Alexander wrote. But the opening line uh, you wrote: "The truth about Croatia. Croatia is phenomenal." Also, Croatia is awful. But then you go on to talk about uh, the analogy of of uh, of what you mean by that, and uh, and and in the in the, the the context of the tournament so far, the the the, the good Croatia, the phenomenal Fro- Croatia, has just outshone the 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 terrible one. Yeah, that is right. Uh, I when you take the context of the game against Brazil into account then and then it all starts to make some uh, further sense. I mean uh, I just, what I wanted to show with with us with that piece is that you can uh, be both at the same time. Because we've all uh, seen Croatia play much better football than they did in this World Cup. Uh, we we, we uh, they proved that they could be much more attractive to watch, much more attacking, uh, much more modern. Uh, we know that, that that they can play better football than this uh, when they uh, take very few risks and create very few chances. But uh, they are very successful with this type of football at this World Cup. So uh, this is the phenomenal side. I mean. They they reached the semi-finals for for the second time in a row, which is just ridiculous, you know, for a small nation like that. So uh, I, I wasn't I was not trying to 
criticize uh, the, the coach for doing so. I was just observing that uh, uh, that he opted for this kind of approach, and that we can uh, we 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 can say that Croatia really looked awful so far, which is something that that the neutrals, well, like maybe not most of them, but many neutrals would say. And in Croatia, it's uh, almost like a taboo to say uh, that the team doesn't uh, play, you know, <laughs> very pleasing. But uh, I mean, now that the, when they played Brazil, uh, it's a different story because Brazil was such huge, massive favorites, and uh, I don't think uh, anybody expected the Croatia to be uh, really attacking in that game and to, to uh, try to uh, assert themselves. Uh, what I see, what I saw against Brazil uh, was a very uh, clever tactical game by Croatia. Uh, They're really uh, dynamic and responsible defensive play. And uh, I think they really surprised everyone, uh, showing that they can uh, even take their game to, to uh, I, I would say, even a new level. That's what they did in that game. Alexander, one of the things that seemed obvious is the togetherness of the squad. Uh, I'm led to believe that a lot of these players, even if they are scattered across Europe to a certain extent, all kind of grew up with each other through youth football, kind of literally from very young ages. So could you sort of talk about this sort of special bond that this group of players in particular has and how that even if they're not putting in fantastic performances on the pitch, it's that togetherness that, that brings them through the big games. I must admit, uh, I may not be the, the, the right person to talk about this. Uh, I don't know many of them personally, and I'm not fully aware of all of their of the nature of their relationships with, with each other. So uh, what I can only comment is what I see and how they how they react. Uh, to each other, how they behave. I've never seen any any signs of... Well, uh, there was signs of a uh, rift within a squad uh, maybe a couple of years ago, just after the Euros or before the Euros. But that was a different thing. That that, were, uh, that was connected to some of the players who are not with the squad anymore. Uh, and uh, maybe those who participated in that uh, have since change their attitude and now I think this is a very tight group of players who may not all be best friends with each other but they are they're treating each other with, with you know respect and, and, and that there's a really friendly even family atmosphere within the team uh, that's what I can say uh, and that's what I know you know from seeing uh, how, how they interact and looking ahead to the game ahead, uh, Argentina, obviously another South American opponent. Um, obviously, they've, uh, you know, I think people thought Croatia might be quite tired in the last game because of the extra time and penalties, and, and they've gone and done it again. From what you're hearing about the sort of the mood in the squad, or just what people are saying about it, did is is there a concern that? The, the the tiredness and and that sort of thing, particularly with an aging team, might be an issue. Or do you think it's just galvanised the team that they've already done it twice, and if they have to do it again against Argentina, against I think all the way, then they can do that. I think they they, they got in the zone now because uh, after Brazil, it was uh, now the players have started to to talk about how they uh, what, what their real goal uh, at the World Cup is, and that is to win the World Cup. I mean, we, we haven't uh, heard them talk like that, that being that, that explicit so far. But after the Brazil game, yeah, uh, something like that was said was, uh, by Mateo Kovacic, also by, by Kramaric, and Modric said something similar for, for Spanish press. So I think they're now uh, like extremely full of confidence and self-belief and, and they don't even I mean of course they care who the opponent is they, of course they analyze it and, and you know made adjustments uh, 
on the basis of who the opponent is and how they play. But but I don't think they they even mind uh, playing now Argentina or Brazil or, or, or whichever opponent they play. I think they they're just uh, this win. Although it, it wasn't so win, it was uh, you know winning the shootout. But but they went through. Uh, I think it has, you know, infused them with such massive confidence that they now uh, are going into this game without any fear and, and full belief in, in their capabilities. And before we let you go, Alexander, I, I, I want to ask specifically about um, the player who I think most football uh, observers would comfortably put alongside of uh, some of the great players of all time, uh, not only uh, for his, his influence on his uh, his national side, but also his his vital role with the various club sides that he's played. And, and I speak of uh, Luka Modric, of course, and doing some homework for today, I, I dug up an article that you wrote back in 2016. So he's 37 years old uh, now. So he was in his early 30s at this point, and most of his career you would have thought at the point where you you write this article uh, has uh, has pretty much passed him by, apart from the fact that there's been two World Cup runs uh, uh, since you wrote this article. At the time, uh, you, you said that uh, it, it took many years for Luka Modric to be fully acknowledged as a world-class player uh, in Croatia, uh, that uh, nowhere except probably in Argentina is the cult of the fantastista the classic number 10 attacking playmaker as strong or is imprinted in football fans' collective consciousness as it is in Croatia. So eight years or six years on, I should say, since you wrote that article, uh, um, do the Croatian uh, people uh, now uh, no longer consider him to be the alibi player or the king of pre-assists as you describe in this article? Yes, most definitely so. I think... uh there were still a few factors to this. Uh, first, of course, uh, Modric has really proved himself on the biggest of stages, both for his club and for Croatia. And he also became, I think, if if not necessarily better player, but he he uh, became a, a more concrete. You know, uh, now it's easier to to notice what he's doing on the pitch than than it might have been. Uh, all those years ago, and uh, he's, you, you watch him now, and you can see that he is the boss. Even now, though, mm-hmm. when he's you know a little bit past his prime, but he's still really good. And I think uh, people, uh, it's it's much easier for people to notice that now. But also, uh, it's not um, uh, the, the the kind of. Uh, number ten cult that, that you talk about, uh, it, it's it's not uh, so much of a thing anymore because you know uh, in the past few years no one really has that kind of traditional number ten, not even in Croatia or or elsewhere. So people are now used uh, to, to something else. You know, I, I mean, number ten is is usually a player who who is special, who who who. Um, who is charismatic and stuff like that, but it doesn't necessarily uh, refer to his style or his position anymore. That and it it wasn't like that in two thousand sixteen. Alexander, it's always great to talk to you. We don't do it often enough. Uh, we, as a proud Croatian, wish you all the best uh, uh, for for this match against Argentina. It's going to be a tough one, but if you get through. Uh, and make it to another World Cup final. It sort of feels like uh, um, there's a lot of unfinished business uh, for this squad right now, and I wouldn't put it past them to go all the way if they can knock off Argentina. <laughs> what Croatia have shown that maybe they can't beat you, but they will also make it very, very hard for you to beat them. And <laughs> when you watch the game, if you see if you see Argentina take the lead, then you know they're doomed. You know? <laughs> They'll be doomed mm-hmm. because uh, everybody who took the league against Croatia lost in the end, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I might have a little wager on the first goal score um, for Argentina <laughs> and then back Croatia to win. Uh, might make a fortune. Hey, Alexander, thanks so much, mate. Um, it's It's been a, a lot of fun talking to you and um, and just being able to sort of uh, uh, shoot the breeze about, uh, about the great football nation and the run they're making in the World Cup. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good luck with the, with the show.
Thank you, Alexander Holliger from Telesport in Croatia Zagreb. And of course, uh, he uh, contributes to The Guardian. You'll see his copy there from time to time, as you will also see our next guest after the break, Fernando Duarte. We might have a happy Alexander, but we're not going to have a happy Fernando because we're going to talk about the demise of Brazil in the World Cup next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And off the highs of Croatia heading towards a semi-final, we get to the lows of the Selecao. It wasn't supposed to end this way, SBS Sport writes. Not for Brazil. The five-time world champions entered Qatar with arguably their best squad since 2006 and were tipped by many to hoist football's most coveted prize when it was all said and done. But that's not the case when Bruno Petkovic uh, smashed home the equaliser. The pendulum shifted and so did the momentum and Brazil could never get it back after that. And on our show, we are very grateful for... Uh, a man who, well, he's, he might sound like he's as disappointed as the rest of Brazil, Fernando Duarte from The Guardian. He's got a bit of a cold, but he's been kind enough to still join us. I won't ask how you are physically, Fernando, but emotionally, uh, as uh, a person who follows Brazil, uh, is the pain uh, just setting in? Yeah, it's not, it's not much more pain, uh, Rob. It's basically the irritation that settled in because that was a match that Brazil should have won. And it, the way they were so naive not to defend that lead and the way they they, they, they considered a goal in a counter-attack an extra time of two minutes ago was just kind of like irritating. I've seen Brazil lose many World Cups in my lifetime, but that one just felt like so annoying. <laughs> Let's put it this way, you know. It wasn't, 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 wasn't the sadness. It was just like the irritation that it was one that they should have won. I mean, not the World Cup per se, but the match. Yeah, it definitely feels like, I mean, it's 20 years since that famous night where, well, Ronaldo, obviously we all remember what happened in 1998 where he famously had the fit and uh, uh, and, and took the field uh, physically, but uh, emotionally and mentally the, the squad was uh, was uh, was destroyed going into that match. They, they won the World Cup and Brazil's fifth star was added to their shirt. And, uh, and, and this one was with Neymar uh, meant to be... For the Brazilians, at least, uh, Argentines might uh, argue differently, as might the Portuguese for Messi and Ronaldo alike. But for Neymar, this was meant to to lift him to the stature, equalising and perhaps going past Pelé's uh, goal scoring record. Uh, but as you say, that naivety is it the, on the players or is it uh, on the manager, Tiche? Well, one of the things we, we heard Neymar say during that match, uh, you know, lip readers saw it and. and uh, in the Brazilian media is that he was criticizing his, his teammates saying why were so many of you up the pitch when, when, when the when Petkovic's goal happened and when you think of that uh, Tita had basically put Fabinho Fred to help close midfield alongside uh, Casemiro and Fred was on the right wing the moment that that Croatia started the, the play building up the play they ended up with the equalizer but I also think Tita has a fair amount of, uh, of of things to answer for the way that they, they took he took Vini Junior out of the game. Some of his uh, alterations were changes were a bit questionable. You shouldn't end extra time with still one 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 change to make. You know, Fabio was badly used during this World Cup. I think he's a great midfielder. I think overall. Uh, should carry the responsibility because it was his list of players, it was his list of uh, his group, and the way he prepared them for for, for those matches were, were was not up to standards. Let's remember, despite Neymar's goal, Brazil struggled against Croatia. Okay, they created chances, but technically speaking, Croatia dominated midfield. If they were more ambitious, they could have given Brazil much, much harder game. And at the end of the day, they they, they wanted to settle for penalties and the odd, the odd uh, chance, and they did exactly that. And Tiger didn't have didn't have an answer. And also, let's take out of the penalties. Why start your your sequence with a 21 year old that is making his, his debut at international level, the, the poor, poor Rodrigo boy? 
you know, and then you put Neymar in the fifth penalty, and you don't put your best player to be the fifth. It's been proven that that goes wrong horribly if something happens, and everything can happen in, in penalty shootouts. We saw uh, Brazil dismantle South Korea and and a lot of experts are suggesting it could have been at least double the score but they took their foot off the gas and uh, and equally um, when they were ascendant uh, they were celebrating as if it was almost the World Cup final and they were about to lift the trophy what do you say to people who accuse the Brazilian squad and even Tite himself of participating in some of these post-match celebrations of, of getting ahead of themselves um, and equally not showing a ruthless edge in that game and, and absolutely putting South Korea away the way that it looked like they could have. Oh, they did. They scored four goals in 30 minutes and they, they, they put them to bed. The, the second half, they just, you know, rolled the clock. Uh, why was I annoyed by the dancing? Of course not. You know, they were happy. that those That's a very young team that was basically played the match of their lives in the World Cup. It was a, in my, in my, Years covered the Seleção. It was perhaps the greatest half I've seen Brazil play, rivaling with uh, 2010, the quarterfinal against Holland, where Brazil was technically perfect and should have put that game to bed. The quarterfinal, then in, then in the second half, everything went to bad shape. No, I don't think they were ahead of themselves. Perhaps we all thought that uh, that things were better than they were because South Korea were not Croatia. Great. I, I when I when I was talking ahead of the game, everybody was asking me what I thought that the Brazil should beat Croatia. I said, "Listen, Croatia has very tough side. You know, they they, they they are seasoned players. They know how to defend themselves. I I watch a lot of their games because I do. I, I was very interested in seeing how Belgium was going to do. For like personal reasons, I think the the, the Belgian is all hyped as 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 it can get. So I, I like to have bragging powers. And I saw that they could they could give anybody a game. Um, they could explode. Fernando, they had um, enough. The fact that Argentina squeezed past Australia, then and they squeezed past the Netherlands, and now they have Croatia in the semi-finals, and Brazil, um, they look like they were free flowing. Um, Charlison had shots blocked. Neymar had shots blocked. Paqueta had shots blocked. Blocked. Um, Vinicius Junior had his um, shot on the penalty spot blocked as well. Uh, what does it say about the mentality of Brazilian football generally that uh, the Argentinians can squeeze through, but the Brazilians uh, get um, in in many internet observers say unfairly? Is this going to burn a lot deeper and harder than previous World Cup losses? Well, I think that, uh, that this team, most of this team, we're supposed to basically mature by the next World Cup. It was a bonus for, for, for most of them to be playing this one. Vini, Rodrigo, Anthony, uh, even Richarlison. So the, the, it, 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 was, it, was, it was a very young team that was supposed to struggle a bit. The case of Argentina, they, they, they were helped by two, two things. One is Messi, obviously. You know, the very important influence that, that he has over the team. Second was the fact that there were so many Argentine people in the stadium and if the, I don't, I, I'm not able to compare numbers of Brazilians, but suddenly it seemed, always seems like there were like around more Argentines than the Brazilians in stage. But but they are great. They are great supporters. I mean, it's 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 a debate that comes back from ages in terms of international international games. The Argentina is always more vocal than Brazil, and I think yeah, they showed a lot of resilience. Uh, against the Dutch after conceding two goals. A very similar situation in Brazil. Conceded two goals in, in, in 10 minutes, a little throwaway, uh, a lead like that, and they still won on penalties. But let's also remember that the Dutch penalties are, are very questionable. They have a very questionable record. But fair play to them. They squeezed through. It says that they on that day, they had, they had it more on them. What's the future for Neymar? Um, in your opinion, um, what should he do with his international football career at this point? I think he'll be thinking a lot now about how much, how painful this World Cup cycle is, this four years, how taxing it is. There's a lot of sacrifices to make, including the grueling South American qualifiers, which are played in league formats. Everybody plays each other. It's like a, you play 17 games across three, two to three years. 
I don't know if he's got one, another one of those. In, you know, because you carry the nation behind your back, and he's, he's being widely criticized uh, by many for years about the way he doesn't deliver for Brazil. His public support of the far-right president didn't, re, didn't really ring well with a lot of supporters. His image is very, very, uh, not shattered, but damaged in, in a certain way. So it could be a tough one for him to do it. What I think he should do it, he should he should try to do it because he's only 30, 34. He's not a bad age to be in a World Cup. He's got the talent, enough talent to, to, to drop back a bit and play as an advanced midfielder if he wants. He can reinvent himself. I've seen other, other players in Brazil do that. And I think if he's if he's worried about his legacy as a player, he should try to win to win the World Cup at least one other time. I understand if he doesn't do it because we're not in his boots, we're not in his head. You know, it's three times in a row that he he he, he has this disappointment, and this time he felt much more cruel because it was so close. You know, after he scores that brilliant goal, that should be being game set a match. But I think if he worries about his legacy as much as he's, he's, he's quoted as as to be doing, he needs to try another one because otherwise he will just become the, the, the almost player. And I, I don't think his ego would deal with that. But we need to see. We, and we need to respect whatever decision he takes. I don't think Neymar has been a, a massive flop for Brazilian football. He's been the biggest talent we've had since, uh, you know, Ronaldo, Adriano, Kaká. It's just things didn't click the same way. I mean, the guy won a lot of tight trophies at club level. We could question his decision to leave Barcelona as much as he wants, but the talent is there. Hey, Fernando, we'll let you go, mate. You're, uh, you're, you're sounding a little bit secondhand with that croaky throat of yours, mate. And uh, But um, your uh, your thoughts on, on the demise of Brazil uh, um, are just fascinating for us, mate, uh, as someone who follows uh, the Selecao so closely. So um, perhaps we'll, we'll get in touch with you uh, on another day down the track when, when the rebuilding process has started and get your assessment again then. Yes, because there is a rebuilding to do. I mean, who's going to replace Tita? That's, that's a big question. People started to talk about bringing a Portuguese manager, and I, I think it worked pretty good for some Brazilian players. If you look at the work that Abel Ferreira did, is doing at Palmeiras and uh, Jorge Jesus did for Flamengo. But there is the famous question in, in terms of foreign managers: No foreign manager has ever won the World Cup with a team mm. that's not his home team, you know. So it, it, those things need to be analysed. I know that records and and, and, and ducks are made to be broken, but it's something very serious to think. You know, for Brazil yeah. specifically, it would be a massive move to to basically go forward. Oh well, we know how disappointed we were to go out to Argentina when we uh, when we came so close to, to going through to another round, and so uh, you know it doesn't even bear thinking about what it's like in Brazil right now. Fernando, thank you so much for joining us, mate. We'll talk to you again soon. No problem, my pleasure, man. Good luck with the rest of the year. Thank you, Fernando Duarte from The Guardian. Okay, stick around. We're going to be all woke up in Woke Up Corner after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. We've got a couple of little uh, bits and pieces to, to tie up before the... Uh, we wrap up the show, Willem. Um, where, where are you going to drift us into uh, in this um, well penultimate World Cup corner? One of the great things about the World Cup, I mean, the world game is so big, you can't really be across every single player and every single manager. And sometimes at World Cup time, you get to see prominent players and managers uh, in the spotlight. And you get to learn about who they are and where they come from. I think there's been a few people around the world who have not liked getting to know Antonio Mateo Lajos over the past couple of weeks. And he is firmly in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons uh, for his refereeing of the Argentina-Netherlands quarter finally dished out a World Cup record 18 yellow cards. 
Uh, I think 14 of those in regular time, two during the shootout, and two to those on the benches as well. Frankie de Jong played for the Dutch. He said Lahoz made outrageous calls and lost his way. He said the ref was influenced by Lionel Messi during a discussion they had at the end of regular time. Messi himself said Lahoz was not up to the task and edge. I thought that was a little bit rich given how much Lionel got uh, away with. But worst of all, and this is where it did certainly cross the line, came from Emiliano Martinez, a villain in Australian circles at the moment after his save of uh, Garansky Kual. Uh, let's take a listen. So that is pretty classless there, Edge. Uh, that for me is verging on a ban if you're you know, ascertaining that there's match fixing um, from the referee that he's you know, backing one team over another to score a goal. That that crosses a line. But Lahoz, what have you made of him? He, uh, yeah, doesn't mind a uh, doesn't mind a chat. Doesn't mind calling just about every single foul he sees. He had a, he had a bad game, didn't he? Oh, look, the, the refereeing is an interesting discussion at World Cups because I actually think they do pretty well generally because they come from all over the world. Um, you know, we all know that get, that refereeing interpretations in one part of the world versus another can be a little bit uh, different. There's nuances. I actually think they do a reasonably good job, but no, he uh, he didn't do a good job in the Netherlands game. But what was interesting that I, I do have a theory, Willem, we spoke about it, that the big nations seem to get away with a lot more than the little nations. Little na- And the big players tend to have something over the referees. They're, you know, we saw Messi uh, was extremely vocal in the game against Australia with, with a referee and he was in his ear the entire time uh, speaking Spanish to each other. So, look, it's just one of those things that... Um, that is a, a constant form of discussion. But I think generally it's a very tough gig. Um, generally they do very well, but um, every now and again uh, they put in a shocker. And, you know, I, the referee in Argentina versus Netherlands was poor. And we saw, you know, we saw entire pitch invasion at one stage. I mean, the, both benches were on the field. I mean, yeah, it's just, it just can't, yeah. you can't have that. Yeah, Rob Paredes's kicking of the ball at the Dutch bench was probably the, uh, the moment where it, you know, turned yeah. from yeah. testy to, to ugly. Uh, and, I mean, what goes on on the pitch should probably stay on the pitch. But, yeah, disappointing to see both sides walk off and continue it in the dressing room. We saw Messi, who's usually pretty pretty calm away from the field of battle, uh, giving it in the uh, – while, you know, while someone walked past, I think it was Veghorst uh, during, uh, during an interview. Uh, so, yeah, not a match where they shook hands and, uh, and went home. It's continued uh, well and truly after. Absolutely, and you saw the, uh, the, the that still shot of the Argentines sticking it up the the Dutch uh, after they they'd won the game. And Willem, look as a you know person with Dutch heritage, um, it is a nation known for its uh, forthright opinions. So um, there was uh, a bit coming back from the Argentine side, suggesting that uh, uh, that they were only giving back as good as they got. So uh, the fact that they ended up winning the game, the spotlight goes on them, but. Uh, Equally, the Dutch are not um, innocent bystanders in all of this. I don't doubt that for one second. No. And, uh, and just on the subject of referees, let's not forget uh, uh, the Brazilian referee, Wilton Sampal, who got slammed by Harry Maguire and pretty much every second person you talk to in England uh, for his performance. Uh, not, not often you see an English player come out after a match and, and hammer a referee, but uh, he says... Uh, on B in sports, he said, I thought the referee's decision-making throughout the game was really poor. We always stand here, we as players, we get criticised, so it would be nice to see if he comes out and says whether he's had a good game or not. There were so many decisions in that first half where France had made five, six early fouls. Um, he then talks about the Bukaya Saka foul uh, that led to the first goal, obviously, where they can't go back, or at least that's um, uh, the impression that we're getting because they didn't go back on, on VAR and show that because clearly if that foul is given, the ball never ends up at the other end and the goal isn't scored. So uh, the uh, English, I mean, to be fair, uh, there's a certain uh, penalty miss that uh, uh, Harry Kane uh, was was channeling uh, Johnny Wilkinson, um, as a lot of us saw that that, uh, viral video of, and if you haven't seen it, jump onto Twitter and find the viral video of Johnny Wilkinson teaching Harry Kane edge. Uh, But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of criticism coming out from players and officials and fans. Do I see the referee's fault that Harry missed the penalty, Rob? Clearly. Um, it, uh, it, it's um, not lost on non-partisan supporters that that might have had oh, something to do with it. Cup corner. Let's tell you off on the palms. I mean, really, it was just to be expected they were going to collapse. It was mm. just to be expected that they, mm. with the weight of expectation, would get them. I mean, mm. anybody who thought England was going to beat France, I mean, give me a break. 
And Willem, what about you know, Southgate? I've just seen a, an article dropped by our friend Henry Winter in the Times, uh, one of the very few, if any, people uh, who've got a voice in football in the UK. Uh, the headline on the front page, a new manager is needed if England are to end decades of failure. And, uh, you know, the opening line, where is the fury? Why did England go so quietly into the desert night? And it goes on. So we know Henry's not one to pull punches, but uh, but Gareth Southgate in, in this instance, because of the style and the way they played, um, He's he's getting off the hook. I mean, I'm, why was Raheem Sterling used when there was a lot more firepower on the bench? When you know, for all the right reasons, he went home to care for his family. But uh, you know, he's out of the squad. He's uh, um, you know, he's had to fly back home and 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 back to to the UK. How could he possibly be at um, at his absolute best to do what was needed to be done to pull that game out of the fire? Yeah, and equally, um, Saka came off, and there's been a fair bit of criticism that he was playing that well. He was probably the uh, the hot man who's been excellent throughout the tournament. So why was he pulled off uh, mm. at, at what was a crucial point? I think around Southgate, whether they move on from him and whether or not he's done a good job, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think he's done an excellent mm. job in mm. uh, bringing everyone in under the same sort of harmony for so long, a divided dressing room and such a heavy shirt that we often hear about. Um He's, he's gotten the best out of some players and he's gotten teams to uh, to the semis at the last World Cup, the finals of the Euros. So he's got them thereabouts when for so long they were nowhere near it. So I think he's done a really good job. Um, can he take them further? That's the question that needs to be asked. And if they decide that it's no, that's more than fine. But I don't think you then have to look back on South Kenya as a failure. Not at all. Right, boys, uh, let's wrap it up there. There's a big edition of Stoppage Time coming up soon. Derek's going to host that with you, Edge, and Willem, I'm going to take a seat on the bench for that one. Uh, there'll be plenty more to come during the week. Uh, Edge, welcome back to your show. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, yeah, my last few days in Doha, looking forward to the semifinals. And Roberto, it's good to see you uh, digitally at least, and uh, soon I'll be able to shake your hand back in Australia. Looking forward to that too. I think we're going to have a big Middle Eastern feast. Well, and what do you reckon? I think Edge has eaten uh, more than enough Middle Eastern. I yeah, think that's I've what he's enough, been, uh, he's been saying. If <laughs> I have any more tabbouleh, I'll turn into a parsley. <laughs> no, no okay. you. good show. Good to have the, uh, the crew back. Yeah, all right. Well, and well done. And to Derek uh, for his contributions earlier in the show. He had to jump on the bench after we had our our chat to, to Alexander, but he'll be back right in the middle of stoppage time. And to Damien Tardio as well. He always does a brilliant job. Thank you, Damo. And to you, our listeners, thanks again for listening. We hope you've been enjoying our coverage during the World Cup. Uh, there will be heaps more and always more episodes to drop during the course of the week. Please subscribe to Box to Box, Box to Box Stoppage Time and Offside. There'll be another edition of Offside coming up soon. We've just uh, found uh, the challenge of getting uh, new guests and fresh guests. We've got some great stories there, Ron Smith, and uh, and um, uh, we also have uh, our, our great mate, Paul Wade. And, uh, um, and uh, Willem, tell me who are our Gary. other two guests was. Julie Dolan, we've had Gary. Gary Ock and the man himself, Martin Tyler. Exactly, exactly. So great additions of offside, uh, nice profile pieces. So we'll be putting out some more of those. Tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook and make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.